This morning we're going to be starting a series that I've entitled God's Designs, plural, for marriage. And I will once again remind you that parts of the next several messages are going to be PG-13. So if we have kids in here, I'm going to suggest that they go to their appropriate age-related class because we will, in fact, be discussing things in here that are of an adult nature. Because Scripture does. And I think that very often, because pulpits in America have been largely silent on some of these issues and taken rather a Victorian look at them, and skipped over them at times, we find ourselves very often in a place we don't have an answer for the world for why uh, there's a problem. And so I pray that over the next couple of weeks as we look at this seventh chapter here in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, that we'll be encouraged, we'll be strengthened, that our marriages will be strengthened, and that our families will be strengthened so that we can live our lives in a way that we are affecting our culture for the cause of Christ. And so my goal is to simply preach the word simply. But Scripture touches on subjects like sex. And because it does, we shall. And because we have this issue is probably the number one destructive force in our world today, not to mention our nation, because of the abuse, I think it behooves us to look correctly at what God planned. And so this morning, God's Designs for Marriage, Part 1, we're covering just two verses today because I really think it's necessary for us to set the stage for where God would have us be as we study this particular subject here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray for just a perfection uh, of both the truth of your word and love and also, Lord, a, a balance, God, that it would be strong enough and yet gentle enough to receive it. We pray that you'd correct those things in each one of our lives, our married lives, Lord. For those seeking marriage, that they'd hear these words and remember them. Father, for those that you've called to be single, Lord, would you bless them? Would you use them? Lord, would you help us to understand that your plans are good in all areas of life? And so we pray that you would use this time this morning uh, to bless us as your family, Lord, help us to receive with gladness your word. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. From the New Living Translation, verse 1 says this, And now regarding the questions that you ask in your letter, I want you to remember that Paul is actually responding to a letter or letters that he received regarding some things that are going on uh, in Corinth, it's interesting to me that Corinth and California have so many similarities. It's interesting to me that the time that Paul lived in was so similar in many ways to the age that we live in. Of course, without the technology and without uh, the media that we have today, but the problems were the same, and the problems really have always been the same. And that's part of the beauty of the Word of God, because though it was written 2,000 years ago, it's just as applicable today as it was then. 
And in fact, it does address the issues that are confronting us this day. He goes on to say, yes, it's good to live a celibate life. And I want to elaborate on this whole concept a little bit today to allow us the the freedom, if you will, to move forward. It's good to live a celibate life. The moment that people read that, very often their mind goes to places that are unknown. What does he mean? What's he getting at? But because, notice this, and I really appreciate the way the New Living Translation translates this, and it's very accurate from the original language. Because there's so much sexual immorality, in other words, because there are problems, because the world is filled with sexual sin and temptation, part of, not the only, but part of one of the beautiful things of marriage is to give a place for human sexuality, which God, by the way, ordained, built, designed, and gave us a place that it is appropriate, and that it is wonderful, and that it was designed by God to be. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to shy away from in the context of marriage. God invented sex. And in doing so, he knew exactly what he was doing. He did not make a mistake. And the problems that we see in our world is because, like so many other things, what God created that was good and wonderful, man has figured out a way to abuse. And so he says, because there's so much immorality, In our world, too, each man should have his own wife. I want you to notice both those are singular. They're not plural, nor does it say that each man should have his own man, or each woman should have her own wife. From God's perspective, there is only one design for marriage. It is one man, one woman, for life. Forever. There is no other plan from God's perspective. It's the reason that the things that we're engaged in in our culture right now are absolutely essential that the church does not waver from the truth of God's word. Because to do so is to leave our nation without a voice of godliness. Because if we won't stand for what God stands for, I guarantee you nobody else will. When the church gives up on the biblical definition of marriage, then the world is going to go a direction that God doesn't want it to go. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. He repeats it just in case there's any misunderstanding. And I want to take a look from here, and I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1, because the question comes up, and the question is in our culture today, and the question will remain, and I hope that we can answer this question in a way that this morning we can put these things, if you will, to some form of biblical rest. 
But it says in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, And so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God's creative talents, his design and his purpose in the creation of mankind was the creation of two separate and equivalent but completely different genders. God did that. He did not make men to be women, and he did not make women to be men. And part of the problem in our culture today is we have blurred that line. We have stepped across it. We have tried to make our young men into women. And we have tried to make women into men. And frankly, it's an abysmal failure. And part of the problem that we see in our culture today is we don't know who's what. It's almost as if it's wrong for a woman to be a woman. And it's almost as if it is wrong for a man to be a man. God did that, and he did not make a mistake. And it goes on, with all, by the way, with all the anatomical differences. In case you hadn't noticed, we ain't the same. That was God's plan, by the way. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The basic command here in chapter 1 is for mankind to actually be the beneficiary of a male-female relationship. It's directly linked to the family. It's directly linked to the creation of children. In a bizarre way, it is directly linked to that union that comes from a man and a woman. And for without it, we have no kids, we go nowhere. We're pretty much toast, okay? There's no generations to follow after. And it can't be done any other way. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so from God's perspective, he says to man, here's your family unit, and here's the earth, use it. That's the basic thing that's said. Chapter 2 is actually an elaboration on chapter 1. It adds detail. And so now turn to chapter 2 in verse 18. And the Lord said, it's not good that a man shall be alone. And so it's not there's a mistake in Scripture. It's just simply elaborating on what happened on that sixth day of creation that's defined there in chapter 1. It's not good that a man should live alone. I'll make a helper comparable to him. And so from God's perspective, God says, Adam's not going to really function real well in that capacity of multiplying and filling the earth when he can't do it. He needs help. And it's interesting that the word is translated there, helper or helpmate, actually means completion. It means a counterpart. It means to fill in the gaps, fill in the voids. It means that in the creation, if you will, of the male and female relationship, that God in his marvelous design said, you know what? 
I'm going to make Adam with a certain set of gifts, and I'm going to make Eve with a certain set of gifts. I'm going to make them unique in their giftedness, and I'm going to put them together so that in that bond between them, they need each other. That they're not whole without each other. That they make less than what they can make together alone. There's that void that's there. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam and see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But Adam found no helper comparable to him. He's going, hey, there's two zebras. There's uh, two monkeys. There's a couple of brontosaurus there. I think there's kind of two of everything. It's kind of as if Adam is saying, well, God, where's my completion? Where's my helper? I mean, the lions look kind of happy together. Have you seen my cave? It's kind of a, you know, I don't do good with this domestic stuff here. I'm exaggerating, of course, for sake of illustration. But Adam, there was no helper found comparable for him, and so the Lord caused a deep sleep. And out of Adam, Scripture says, comes Eve. To some degree, exactly like him in humanness, but very different in form and function. Verse 23, And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And notice what is next, because it really is the biblical definition of marriage. And therefore, okay, you have the creation of man, you have the creation of woman, they are not the same. Anybody that says they are disagrees with God, not with Jeff, disagrees with God. He made them very unique. He made them for a purpose. He made them absolutely necessary for the continuance of humankind, each individually according to their gender. And he says, and therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The part of the purpose of marriage is for that beautiful union that occurs, of course, in a sexual relationship. The two shall become one flesh. Joined together in a way that you cannot experience any other way. Part of that, of course, is procreation. Part of that is the continuance of humankind. Part of that is the beauty that we'll see throughout Scripture of having children and the blessing they are in life and the challenges that they bring us. That's part of it. But I want you to notice something because it really sets the stage for later here in this marvelous book. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. I don't need to elaborate on that for you. I think you get the picture. If your brain cells are operating in a remote form of correctness, you understand what's being said there. That there was a purpose for those anatomical differences. And it was a good purpose. And as a matter of fact, that in God's design and God's plan, 
There was something absolutely holy and beautiful about the fact that they were both naked, and there was no shame. There was no guilt. It was not the perversion that we have in our world today. It was absolutely God's design and his plan that Adam would be going, wow. Eve would be going, check out the six-packs on Adam. That dude is handsome. It's the only reason that this is mentioned here. When you look at what's being said, there is a direct implication by the word of God that it's supposed to be that way. So God designed our physical union in a sexual relationship. Whatever God designs, his word plainly declares, is good. Amen? Only mankind messes things up. We take and abuse what God meant for good and what God designed wonderfully and perfectly, and we take and use it for something else. And that's why he's already discussed in chapter 6 why sex outside of marriage is always damaging and hurtful. He's now going to go on and talk about what that means in marriage and why it's good and why it's wonderful. And before we do that, And I really want to just bring to light one issue for the remainder of our time this morning. A lot of people don't like this subject. It's not easy to teach on. Put yourself in my shoes. How do you teach on something that you don't want to teach on? Okay. How how do you explain things that obviously most of us know, but maybe there's some in here that it could offend. Perhaps it would cause someone to think, some thoughts that are a little bit difficult to deal with while you're sitting in church. It's not easy, but God's word plainly declares it. And so we need to plainly declare it. Scripture, from its viewpoint, handles things this way. And this is what I want to share with you and really finish with this morning. It'll be the only thing that we really look at from here on until we get to next week. Liberty says, it just doesn't matter, just go for it. Legalism says, oh man, we need to make sure that we're following all the laws. Someplace in the middle is where God would have us walk. Because we sure can't swing all the way over to the legalistic side. Well, you know, I mean, you're talking about male and female parts in church. There are people that look at that and I can't believe he said that. Your Bible says that. So to take the legalistic view is, well, we won't talk about that. It's what the Hebrews did. Hebrew men were not allowed to read the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, until they reached the age of maturity and were beginning courtship because it was too explicit. You can take that view. You can take the view that, well, let's not discuss it. You know, after all, it'll just happen. It's what the world does. So someplace in the middle. And I want to address, really from chapter 6, all things are lawful for us. Remember we saw that? That was the, that was the mantra, that was the cry in, in the city of Corinth. Hey, everything's okay, everything's lawful, everything's legal. I mean, the cross, I mean, the cross is awesome. I can now do anything I want. 
So a lot of people's response to that was, well, that can't be right. So they swing all the other way to legalism. Well, we'll just bury our teenagers in the ground in a cargo container until they turn 18 and then let them out. We won't talk to them about anything. Because, man, you talk to them, you know what that'll do? Neither works real well, does it? You, you can't be all the way over here to where everything's okay, because everything's not okay. Amen? You don't believe that, pick up a newspaper. You for sure can't go all the, all the way the other way, because that's what you were saved from. We read from, in essence, the Old Testament, from a time when the law was in place, in our passage in Ezekiel. Man, I'm really glad that you aren't put to death because of the things that you think. Amen? You see, we need to walk down the middle road. Paul, I believe, in recognizing this in chapter 7, begins to see this misunderstanding. And so you got some people saying, think on this, well, man, I'll just stay celibate. I'll, uh, matter of fact, it's way more holy. Doesn't work for most people. You don't believe that? Look at the monastic age, the Middle Ages. Some of the most vile, perverse things that have ever been done on the earth were done by monks. They set up all kinds of crazy stuff. They sequestered themselves in castle fortresses on the tops of hills, and they still were perverse in their thinking. Because God created us as sexual beings. And some he's called the singleness, and some he's called the married life. And in fact, most he's called the married life. Some he's called the singleness. Both are okay. But we have in our day and time, crying out for liberty. Hey man, don't judge me. Stay out of my bedroom. You heard that one? We're hearing that in our country today, aren't we? Ah, just stay out. Of, I don't know why Christians are concerned. God's concerned. That's why Christians are concerned. God's concerned that this area of our life is exactly as he designed it, not as mankind has perverted it. Their argument probably went something like this. The law of Moses tells us that it was wrong to commit adultery. The law of Moses says so. Paul taught us that Christ came into our life to rule and reign, so we're no longer under the law, we're no longer under the commandments, so we can commit adultery. You know, there's an awful lot of Christians that have exactly that view today. They do. Not that big a deal. I mean, after all, can't live it, so I'll just do whatever. God's grace will cover it. You, you see, that's the libertine view. The legalistic view says, well, man, you know, that person got divorced, so for sure they're frying in hell. After all, didn't Jesus say, a man divorces his wife, he's to remain unmarried? You realize Scripture says that? So if you take the legalistic view, you know what that says? If you're here today and you got divorced and there was no biblical reason for it and you remarried, you realize you're living in sin. And from a legalist standpoint, not Jeff's, by the way, not scriptures, by the way, you're probably going to burn. Mm -mm, that's not good, is it? So what do you think God intended? I believe 
He wants us to walk right down the middle between those two extremes. Because to swing all the way to libertinism is to say you can do whatever you want. We know that's not true. To swing all the way to legalism is to deny the grace of God that saves you. It can't be either extreme. It can't. Otherwise, grace is not sufficient. You're actually saved by works. If you go to the legalistic side all the way, you're saved by works, pure and simple. I grew up in a town in San Diego, and probably many of you had that same experience. It seemed like every housing tract at that day and time, all the houses were divided by cinder block walls or, or walls that were usually six, seven, eight feet high in some cases, rather thin. I used to love walking on the tops of those walls. I don't know why. You just get up there and kind of walk and you could go from house to house and kind of, they were all linked together. And I found great enjoyment in walking on the tops of those walls. It was kind of like a test. You kind of up there, you know, wandering around. Can I say to you, it didn't matter which side you fell off on? Drop was the same. Sometimes there was a dog on one side, not on the other, but but you could walk along the top of the wall. It didn't matter which side you fell off on. If you fell off on one side, just as far as the other. That's liberty and legalism. The drop's the same. The pain's going to be the same. One's going to be in one person's yard. One's going to be in the other person's yard. One is an error one way. One is an error the other way. I can tell you what it takes to walk on the top of that wall. It takes concentration. It takes focus. It's exactly what Jesus said. He said, narrow is the way that leads into salvation. You've got to walk that wall between liberty and legalism. Not going to either side. Not dropping off on either side. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, reminded us that in this world, Satan always sends temptation in twos. And generally those temptations are liberty and legalism. Two extreme views. And you can get hung up either way. That's what's in view in chapter 7. The law is extreme, makes very rigid demands. But isn't liberty also extreme? Because it allows you to do anything. And Scripture doesn't allow you to do everything. All things are lawful, remember what he said, but I won't be mastered by any. I want to help you if you're struggling with this. I walked on both sides for a long time. I was like, man, don't judge me. I mean, God created dope. I mean, pot's a plant, isn't it? You know, I was in that hippie group that's just like, whatever. You know, look how messed up our world is. Vietnam War is going on. And this is wrong. And then I switched over to the other side. I fell off the wall the other way. Oh, man. I need more bumper stickers on my car. (laughs) I am not bold enough for Christ, you know. Get a bigger Bible, 14 highlighters. 
walk around, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. (laughs) Neither side's good. We need to walk down the middle. And I will tell you that the way you walk down the middle is God's grace. God's grace saves you from sin. It saves you from sin. And it saves you to good works. You see, if you're really one of God's kids, you're not really free to do whatever you want. But you are free to live in a way that's pleasing to God, which is the very best way for your life, including in your married life, including in your sex life, including how you view everything on this earth and how you use it. Every aspect of your life is actually governed in some degree by Scripture. Every bit of it doesn't tell you how to do everything. You see, the legalist takes the negative point of view. Everything's a mess. We need to stay away from all of it. The libertine person says, everything's okay. I'll do all of it. Neither's true. Grace causes you to walk down the middle. Help us to walk in grace, Lord, as we study this passage. That's going to be my prayer. Help us to walk down the middle. Help us to shun those profane things. But help us to be set free that when we do fail, there's grace that's sufficient for your sin. That it's the grace that saved us, but it saved us unto good works. And if we do that, you get the right spin on everything. You don't do that, you get the wrong spin on everything. Grace is walking the wall. And as we Take this time to to look at marriage. May we walk in grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we do desire this morning to just walk in your grace. And Lord, as you designed marriage, as you presided over the first one in the garden, as you created man and woman unique, as you made us physically to complement one another and to bless one another, As we study your designs for marriage, cause us to receive as we walk in grace. Lord, just that beautiful picture. Lord, neither libertine nor legalistic, simply acknowledging you for the good God that you are. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.